2: Hello, Movie Truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif.
3: I'm David Jenkins
2: and i'm hannah strong on the show this week david and hannah talk us through some of the most exciting titles to look forward to in 2024 it's the subject of the new issue poor things and hannah spoke to the icons only crew of mark ruffalo rami Yusuf, and willem defoe then it's sophia coppola's complex portrait priscilla and i got to speak to its cinematographer philippe Lassaud, about the film all coming up in truth and movies and little white lies podcast So, happy new year to you both and to all the listeners. Hopefully a slightly less cursed one than last year. No strikes though some other bad stuff is happening so it's not all good.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's never not I, I kind of feel that we're in a place where it's never not going to be like fully unbad in the world. But that but that and, and that's 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 sorry to be glib about the uh, state of things, but um you know, we we can only pray for 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 a good one really. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I did read a very depressing um, interview with someone where they said that after the Second World War, the subject of many, many films, the idea of like re-entering war was just like considered absolutely impossible. And now we live in a state where the idea of there not being a war on seems like <laughs> absolutely impossible. God, this is such a gloomy entrance. <laughs> uh, but yes, at least we have the movies to distract ourselves. So should we start with Hannah? Do you want to talk us through some of your most exciting titles that you're looking forward to seeing?
4: Yeah, so the highlight of my year, or one of the highlights of my year, I should say, um, every year is putting together our end of year preview for the next year, which takes me a lot of time and is very stressful, and it's a lot of work. So if if you've read it, thank you because it it genuinely does take me a lot of time, and I I take it very seriously. But um, it gives me a nice, you know, nice period where I'm just kind of looking forward and looking for projects that have been shot that maybe I didn't know about, or projects that have moved forward and. Development, which have been kind of on the back burner for a long time. It's kind of a nice way of me checking in with how the industry's doing, which we don't always get a chance to do on the kind of day to day. So there's lots coming down the pipeline that I'm very excited about. Um, the Iron Core is out in a few weeks, which I think is just a wonderful film by Sean Durkin about the Von Erich family, uh, kind of tragic wrestling dynasty. And we'll be covering that one on the podcast. So I'm not going to say too much more about it. There's a film coming out called Bring Them Down. Down, which is a first-time uh, British filmmaker, and it is about a farming family who come into kind of conflict with another uh, neighbouring family, and that stars Barry Keoghan and Christopher Abbott. So that's you know very exciting times. Two of my two of my boys, and I mean obviously I'm, I can't wait for the new Bon Gene Ho, can't wait for the new Francis Will Coppola. I think that potentially this could be we say every year, but it could be an all-time can lineup because there's just so much kind of exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. Maybe a new Terrence Malick film. We say that every year, but maybe,
1: maybe (laughs) maybe this year will be the year. Maybe a new Lynch film. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe (laughs) a new Lynch
4: film, yeah. So um, yeah, there's tons of stuff. Um, I mean, even like Sundown starts in a few weeks and I'm I'm very excited for the new Rose Glass film, uh, Love Lies Bleeding. I'm lucky enough to, I don't know how much we can say about what we've seen some stuff that's coming in the next few months. And and there's some very fun stuff already kind of um, due in the first... I'm trying to be oblique. I don't want to get like sued by any distributors, but there's some good stuff already coming down the chute, which is good because, you know, in January, February, it's such a kind of gloomy time of the year. You don't... Well, you need something to look forward to. This month, traditionally, although we're talking about two very good films today it's not always the strongest period for cinematic releases and then kind of looking further ahead i'm very excited for the beast which i think we talked a little bit about on the venice
2: podcast i can't remember i believe there was a chant of beast beast beast
4: (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like something we would do (laughs) um yeah i'm I'm so happy that's got distribution because vanilla's last film coma i don't think did get distribution here i don't think it got distribution anywhere um so it's it's nice that it's been picked up. Um, it's, it's a very, very good film. And that's out in May over here. I mean, as always, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of fun interesting stuff coming it's you know I, I, as much as I like shit talk the film industry <laughs> um, the, you know th- this does kind of give me hope that there's still loads of interesting films getting made and um, hopefully coming out in cinemas if, if cinemas still exist in like six months time who knows
2: well one thing that we'd normally be getting excited for but doesn't really exist anymore is virtual Sundance <laughs> which would normally be <laughs> uh, something that was coming around the corner and we were going to uh, sit on our laptops and use their fantastic online platform sadly that has sort of gone by the wayside in this post-pandemic world but but anything at Sundance that you're particularly excited for well Love Lies Bleeding
4: will be there but I won't get to see that because that's not online um I'm not going in person because it's many, many thousands of pounds, which no one has unless they're rich or work for a huge magazine. There's a couple of smaller things. There's a film called Selma um, starring June Squibb as this uh, elderly lady who gets her kind of own back on a scammer who steals her life savings, which I'm excited to watch. Um, and there's f- another film with Christian Stewart and Stephen Yeun about... Now, the way it's described, I don't quite know what it's going to be like. Um, it's about a boy... And- a satellite who fall in love but they're humans but they're not their technology i don't know it it sounds like her um and i love her so you know i'm i'm into this kind of inanimate objects <laughs> falling in love with each other thing, I, I don't know. Sounds like a Sundance film. Sounds interesting. And then there's this film between the Temples with Jason Schwartzman and Carol Kane, which is about a rabbi who ends up teaching his former schoolteacher who is converting to Judaism, like later in life. And it just, yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of odd and lovely and yeah i i I have no idea kind of what to expect sundance is that festival of kind of discovery it sounds really lame but it but you know it's where i saw the souvenir and i remember like going into that with kind of quite middling expectations the same with something like minari which i remember seeing and just been so kind of blown away by um so you know even though the online offering is very sparse this year and i have a lot of thoughts about that that i will not express on this podcast because we already have a lot to talk about today but um yeah hopefully there'll be some good stuff to come out of it of course berlin film festival is next month which i'm sure is going to be like jam-packed there's a film playing actually at berlin called cuckoo which i'm very excited to see with hunter schaefer so yeah there's 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 tons i'm excited about almost kind of too much for me to comprehend this uh Too much good cinema,
2: as uh, Barry Jenkins once said. David, what about you? Anything you're particularly excited for that's going to be imminently released?
3: Yeah, I I mean, Hannah covered many, many bases there. So I'll try and pick a few, like, tinier things. One thing I'm really looking forward to is a film called Grand Tour by a Portuguese filmmaker called Miguel Gomez. And he did a film called Taboo and he did a film called Arabian Nights, which way, way, way back when he, we put on the cover. And he did a little kind of, Doodley pandemic film as well, which was the last thing he 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 released, and he he's he's had this kind of grand historical war epic that he's been making for years and years and years, and it was going to be made in Mexico, then it was going to be made in Argentina, and then I think it's moved elsewhere now. But from from what I hear, it's done and dusted, and is going to be coming to a a, hopefully a festival. So I guess we'll see where where that pops up. Uh, But yeah, he's he's one of my faves. I'm looking forward to that. Also looking forward to a film called The Nickel Boys. I'm not entirely sure when that's going to turn up, but it's by a filmmaker called Ramel Ross, who did a a film called Hale County this morning, this evening, which was just a really incredible, like sort of ethereal documentary. And this is his take on the novel that Colson Whitehead wrote as the follow-up to Underground Railroad. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see how, how that turns out, him doing a kind of more, I guess, straight fiction film and lastly I think on a more sort of genre bent I'm looking forward to the new film by Alice Lowe who did a kind of like feminist horror film called Prevenge a couple of years back where uh, a woman is experiencing a kind of malevolent force from her kind of unborn child it's sort of like the omen but kind of pre-birth she's got a new film that feels like it's been a long time coming but she tweeted um, in January that it's definitely going to be a be this year it's called Time Stalker. And it's kind of got, it's sort of like a sort of t- dating time travel. I'm sure it's going to have some sort of nasty edge to it with the with the, the word stalker in the title. But like, I'm sure it's going to be very funny, like Nick Frost's in it. And yeah, I'm just excited to see what she's been up to. I, I like that, that little kind of the Garth Marenghi set. And, and, you know, I, I like to keep tabs on all the things that they've been doing. So yeah, I'm re- really, really excited for that one.
2: Oh, that sounds like that would make an amazing double bill with the Beast <laughs> <laughs> in terms of time-travelling men that are uh, best avoided. And women women not able Gee. to catch a break in any timeline. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
4: also, we should we should also mention, since it's on topic, Yorgos Lanthimos will have another film probably coming out. Well not if not coming out, at least at a festival this year. Um his second in as many years, kind of kindness, formerly titled And I mean kind of kindness, I think also is a weird title, but um yeah, this is his reunion with Ethemis Philippu, who wrote who co wrote The Lobster and Dogtooth and Alps and Killing of a Zacid Deer. He He's kind of his Greek um, collaboration partner, uh, Tony McNamara, been his like Australian collaboration partner. So I'm excited for that.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, no time like the present. I, too, am very excited to him returning to being a little bit nastier, but maybe that's just because of the 2023 I had. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, let's get into his latest. It's Poor Things. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. <laughs> Bella Baxter is a young woman brought back to life by an unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter. Under Godwin and his protege's Max's production, Bella is eager to learn. Hungry for the worldliness she is lacking, Bella runs off with debauched lawyer Duncan Wedderburn on a whirlwind adventure across the continents. Sexually curious and free from the prejudices of her time, Bella slowly finds her purpose. But first up, Hannah spoke to Mark Ruffalo, Rami Yusuf, and Willem Dafoe, who played Duncan Wedderburn, Max, and Dr. Goodwin, respectively. (laughs)
5: <laughs> um, first of all, could you talk to me about your first experiences of your Gos filmography and your reaction to that, I guess? The mm-hmm. appeal of working with him for both of you.
6: Know you know that one.
7: Okay, uh, I, th- <laughs> I think what I saw first was Dogtooth, and then after I started looking at other stuff, and I've... Uh, gone back to his films. And I think it's worth noting that his early films are quite different than these films. I mean, not only are they in, not in, they aren't English language films, they're also structured differently. They have a different kind of narrative. And of course, they aren't period films, but they just uh, interested me. And every time I see a movie that touches on some things that uh, excite me, Or uh, engage me, you get curious about the filmmaker. So I followed it, and then when he made the favorite, I thought, "Wow, you know, he's now he's making. Well, he made uh, Killing the Sacred Deer too, but he's making English language films, and the favorite with that uh, period feel. When he proposed this to me, it was like, of course, of (laughs) course." But it's interesting how I've, I've done the film with him after as well, and it's more like his early films. So
5: that's very exciting to me. Yeah, like, so I mean, it's I not like a, I'm not but...
7: implying a, a development <laughs> or, 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 or there's not a hierarchy to these films. He's uh, he's just an incredible filmmaker, and he was great to be around,
6: inspiring.
5: And for you, Mark, what was the kind of first experience you had of his? Work? It was
6: Killing of the Sacred Deer, and then. Um lobster and then favor of course uh, oh, yeah, and then went An back lobster. to dog dog tooth and some of the earlier stuff yeah i mean what, what was remarkable to me was that he can move so easily between different kind of genres and styles but one thing that was stuck out was how great the acting was and how great performances he would get uh, from his actors
5: well, I was going to ask like, how how your experience was working as a director, but I think, since I have three minutes left, uh, I will ask about Emma instead, <laughs> because um, she's such a powerhouse in this film, and I know their collaborations uh, just consistently kind of incredibly exciting to me as a a film lover Mm -hmm. Uh, for you guys as you kind of most of your scenes in the film are with her um how would you kind of describe her as a scene partner as a kind of collaborator
7: fantastic (laughs) yeah and and she's also she's at the center and she was at uh yorgos brought her in very early and yorgos is involved with all aspects of production as was emma so when we arrive it's really about Working with them, working for them really uh, helped to uh, realize what they've been working on for a long time. But she's very, she's very cool, very practical, uh, has great skill, um, and it's fun to be around. No hierarchies, no diva behavior.
6: <laughs> she's a lot of fun. Yeah, she's uh, such a generous. Uh Uh, partner and just so present and game you know totally willing and and fearless and obviously just so gifted and just one of the great uh this is a instant classic uh performance she's a really hard worker but there's something totally easy about her her laugh is the most beautiful funny (laughs) infectious laugh in the world too
5: I mean, watching the film, you do get a sense that this must have been an incredibly fun set to be on.
6: Fantastic. It was amazing.
5: (laughs) And I know in kind of pre-production, when you and uh, Rami did what has been described to me as mortuary school by Yorgos, I'm very curious to know what this was exactly.
7: Well, uh, a woman that worked at the morgue uh, came and taught us how to cut and flay and taught, <laughs> told us some things about doing autopsies and uh, we worked with the period instruments and we uh, learned how to uh, do sutures and that sort of thing and uh, we do a little bit of that in the movie. That's not really the reason it's as much to give us a
5: period. Uh, a bonding if, experience. Yeah. 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 Will yeah. you accept to not be a over, part of this? Over, over Absolutely
7: over not. We <laughs> wouldn't let him No, they were not
6: They, they weren't even, yeah. They Where were the we would never get
7: near <laughs> our chunks of meat that we were sewing together.
6: On. Did you guys end up eating that? No. Okay. I don't eat meat. <laughs> That's right.
5: But for you, there's no kind of dastardly rogue school that you can go to and study kind of how to no. oh there is somewhere I'm sure
6: <laughs> in Berlin
5: <laughs> um, what did your kind of preparation entail because I mean this is a very different performance for you I, I yeah. greatly enjoy seeing you get to do something very um, left field and very, very funny <laughs> not and... as
6: much as me <laughs> um, thank you you know we just had a we had a three week rehearsal process you could the re- the writing was just so wild and and I could tell what it you know what it had to be and um and then you know Yorgos was really pushing me in the direction of kind of physically a lot of physical physicality and I found a lot of that character in that the costume you know the the dancing you know the just the style of it, 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 it was at, you could tell it wasn't naturalism. We, were, we had to push it out. Otherwise, it, it would have just fallen flat. So that was my bit.
5: Yeah, I mean, it, it's very much you're saying in his early work. It's there as well. The the style is kind of it gives you the framework, I guess, for the for everything else. For
6: yeah. Performance. Yeah, which is his theater work. You know, there's you do theater and you're just working in so many different styles. Also,
7: he he, he started. My understanding, he started uh, his first filming was he was filming dance. Yeah. He's really a polymath. I mean, he knows a lot about many different. Uh, Disciplines. He knows about dance. He knows about architecture. He's, he's, he's got a deep understanding. Photography. Of photography.
6: No, love I was, for
7: music. He's incredible.
5: When I was talking to him, like the references he's pulling out, I'm like, this is incredible. And
7: that's yeah, and that's Orson Welles. Being with him, uh, that's the big turn on. Yeah, because he's connected to many beautiful things.
6: And then at any moment he'd run in he'd be like, uh, uh, let's let's do one. And then they'd run in with like a, a, you know an a eight by ten and photo uh, a camera, and he'd be under the hood, you know, and you'd have to stand really still. And he was <laughs> shooting plate film during the course of the um, the just whole for, movie. Just for, like... Takes That's on set. Brilliant. Yeah, and then on his days, off, he, his days off, he's in the dark room. Uh oh and, yeah, yeah, and he show up with these beautiful prints. A lot of on set photos.
5: That's, I mean. They'll just
7: say, come here, and you'll go off in the corner, and you'll do a little impromptu
6: photo session. Yeah. Well,
5: especially when you've got the gorgeous sets as well. Like, you oh, know, like he
6: was shoot we were shooting on those sets. What, what he was shooting his, you know, large format camera. It was amazing. It was such a great you experience. We need to tell
5: him that we want a photo book of, like, all the making a photo
6: book of all of it. I'm so happy it. to hear this. <laughs> it's really cool. The photos are amazing.
5: Final thing, congratulations on the accents in this film. Really good work as a British person. I can say, I like, know, okay. Scottish. But, um, okay. yeah, I wanted to kind of ask very quickly what, what your, like, secret is, if there is a secret to doing a kind of um, a, a British-Scottish accent. Um, or is it just, like, a lot of, like repetition and
6: we had, I <laughs> had to learn I had to I had to start like a couple months before uh working with uh, Neil Swain our um dialect coach I I worked
7: with uh, that same dialect coach and I, I looked at uh, videos of uh Alistair Gray not really you know, following that, but get, getting a flavor from how mm. we spoke. But I think accents, it depends on what kind of performance is, what kind of film it is, because sometimes it's better not to be a good student and do them exactly and kind of do them in your imagination. They're more flexible. Sometimes they may not be totally authentic, but sometimes they fly. And then other times it's really important to... Uh, you know, not have any wonky so- uh, uh, sounds coming out of you. Mm. So you got to judge each time, I especially
5: think, especially with your it's you know everything is a kind of fantasy. It's you know, yeah, ten you, times you got bigger. a yes.
7: room to move. Yes, as Mark says. Who says he's English? <laughs> maybe he isn't. Maybe, maybe that's a put-on maybe accent. Actually, I think Duncan Metterberg is, is
6: actually a total fraud. Bad on <laughs> you for
7: making some kind of assumptions.
6: You're going to judge him
1: on your assumptions? She said I had a good accent. I'm not going to
6: argue with that. I
1: I, I, mean, I come
5: in this room. I try to have a nice conversation.
6: And <laughs> we, <laughs> we, try, we, we try to be nice, too. They just totally it's, it's a little difficult for us. <laughs> yeah, it's hard I'm... for us to be nice.
5: <laughs> Thank you so much.
6: Thank uh, you. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
1: you know, I'm really going through it, and I've been it's separated. Just lonely,
5: you know, yeah,
1: incredibly. <laughs> but I think they felt that I was. Built for it, you yeah.
5: Because they, they, I think
1: Mark or Willem alone.
5: Yeah, I mean, the know, guy. No yeah. one wants that. Like,
1: no one would be. <laughs> There's first interest levels low, and then um composure. They have both have composure issues. <laughs>
5: You didn't so. need each other to keep, like, in check. Like, that's the thing. Well,
1: I think that was the thinking. And then it's somehow it's even it's, it's, worse. It's worse. Yeah, it's so yeah, yeah. Worse. I think that's been the general <laughs> feedback.
5: Yeah, everyone coming in, they're like, oh, God. Oh, you God, know, my God. Like these the guys are out of their yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, first question. Can you tell me your first encounter with Yorgos' work? And what kind of drew you to
1: him as a director? I think it was The Lobster. Although I, I know I watched Dogtooth right around the same time. So I don't mm-hmm. remember which I saw first. But I, I think I saw The Lobster first um, I think I was just immediately drawn in by how funny it was you know and 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 I remember especially with Dogtooth watching it with with people and and, and people being kind of weirded out and <laughs> I'm just laughing the whole time and I think I was really drawn to the way that like, to me all comedy is bringing subconscious To the conscious realm and I think he does it in a way that is so visceral Mm. that it hits in a lot of different ways and it can create a a feeling that um can be unsettling uh for me unsettling is funny uh and so uh I've always been just such a big fan and and when I found out he wanted to talk to me it was uh it was it was crazy that
5: must have been surreal
1: Definitely. <laughs> Even just having a Zoom with him was surreal, you know. And then getting to be on set was was a whole other story. Yeah.
5: Well, I mean, yeah, I I find him a very good litmus test for people. Like, if you know, I'm talking to someone about his movies, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I love him." I'm like, "Yeah." Okay, we'll probably be okay yeah. They're Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I heard you went to mortuary school. Mor- mortuary school with uh, Willem Dafoe, which he then explained was just a woman who came in and told you how to do things with bodies. Yes. Uh, how that sounds like a dream of mine. Going to learning how to do medical. Stuff with Willem Dafoe, I think you've had that dream. Um, how how was that for you? Was that a, I mean, I imagine again that must have been a strange kind of thing to go from this world of you know doing TV and doing stand up to suddenly you're learning how to do sutras with one of the greatest character actors of. All time.
1: Of all time, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I would uh, love to do all medical things with Willem Dafoe. I think any, <laughs> if I ever need to do a procedure, even like basic drawing of the blood, I would like Willem to be there. Feel um, <laughs> very safe with him. Yeah, I feel safe. I feel like he has a good handle of the medical industry. Uh, I think the, the the tone he brings to it is uh, refreshing. <laughs> you know, uh, it was it was very fun to get to have that time with him.
5: And I know that Yorgos is very kind of exacting in his kind of references and things he's drawing from. Did he give you any kind of, oh, you should watch this film, you should look at the, these kind of paintings, you know, whatever. I'm very curious in kind of what direction he gives you when you're prepping.
1: He had sent me this kind of like watercolor photo of a of a guy that he thought was a bit of a style reference for Max, who kind of does look like me a bit, but not really. But there was something there. And, uh, you know, we were talking about just beard length and hair length and that kind of stuff uh, at one point. And um, otherwise, it's just, it was kind of all in the script. You know, I, I think what we cultivated in rehearsals and, and kind of how free everyone got with each other. Uh, he, he's so great because he doesn't really over-talk too much. I think he asked me to do it because he wanted my handle on what it was going to be tonally. I think it was kind of like a tone thing and I think when I first met him we talked about tone and and he talked about the tone of my show and and he had seen my stand-up and so I think we had kind of had an alignment on that. And, and I, I took it to be a comedy straight up. So so I was, uh, you know, I know how to do that.
5: <laughs> yeah, you do, yeah.
1: No, <laughs>
5: <laughs> obviously, like, I mean, I want to kind of ask you about that because, you know, your background is comedy, writing, producing. You know, you had your own show. And I know since you've shot Poor Things, you directed an episode of The Bear. So, like, you know, obviously you're someone who kind of, I guess, must approach something like this, from having all that kind of different experience. And I'm curious to know how much you feel you learned about writing, maybe directing, from like working with your guys.
1: Yeah, I, I took in a lot. I mean, I think I was really impressed with uh, the way that he's so detail-oriented, but he still lets us organically do. you know, He's not a control freak or... I mean, he is, but he's really good at hiding it. <laughs> <Like> he, he, <laughs> he knows what he wants, but he still lets it breathe. Hmm. And I think that balance is what makes something masterful. Uh, everything is thought out. You know, uh, it's so clear. He's worked with the set designers, the costume designers, really, really closely. Um, but at the same time, let them do their own thing. And it's the same thing with the actors. He's going to work really closely and say what he wants but still let you do your own thing. And I think that balance was very reaffirming to see done at such a high level. Mm. Uh, because I think I, I feel um, an organic connection to that, to kind of having, you know, a, a real clear idea of what I want, but still kind of letting the vibe be it. And sometimes I would be like, should I be, like, more and more precise? But then you watch Yorgos work, and you're like, no, there, there's something to... That balance of actually letting things be, and so it it felt very uh, exciting to see him, you know, do that so well.
5: And you, you feel like you've learned from watching him.
1: Oh yeah, I've learned a lot from watching him, and and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just I felt inspired.
5: Good. I mean, I think that's what anyone wants when they uh, work with a director you know you want to come away from it not just of having a great fun time which it sounds like it was anyway but um you know come away thinking oh I've grown as a human being yeah isn't that nice yeah how does it differ working when you're kind of preparing for a period piece to doing something contemporary
1: well for me this was really the first time I was playing something so far from myself and that was really exciting because uh, it's something i felt like i always could do but i didn't know when i would do it and then mm. to have it incoming as opposed to me kind of having to call uh my <laughs> agents and be like i swear i could act act you know because <laughs> it's like my <laughs> show's called in, my show's <laughs> called rami and i play a character called rami it's like you know yeah it's like good and, and and we do what we do and and i'm very proud of it and, and i think but but you know you, you no one's you still kind of think I don't know if they're going to believe me that I could like do a character, and so to have someone like Yorgos say no, you could, you could do this uh, was was amazing.
5: I'm curious to know as well. Like, so you mentioned tone earlier. Um, could you maybe talk about that? I'm very curious to, to know kind of what about your like comedy Yorgo's kind of related to. I mean, it's fascinating to me. Obviously, as a European, like your show here and you know people yeah. love it, but it's just really interesting that he kind of saw something in
1: that? Well, I think there's something about um, the Mediterranean connection of Yorgos being Greek and uh, me being Egyptian where I just kind of felt like I understood his sense of humor. Like, I understood (laughs) the sarcasm, but I also understood the passion. And and, and, uh, I, I think you know, in terms of, you know, how the, the the film plays, you know, there's a certain level of just commitment and not overdoing the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, but the writing is so clear that you can kind of do a lot with a look and you can do a lot based off of having the right tension in a relationship. And I think that's the kind of comedy that he, again, does in his way that's just so signature. Mm-hmm. I, I think the link that, that I kind of felt um, was just understanding oh, I know I know that you don't need this to be comedy, you know? <laughs> and so, like, like, like and, and I think uh, that's when it's, you know, so funny, when it's just honest.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you very much. So, David, I mean, this one kind of seems like a bit of a no-brainer, like just the ideal subject for a Little White Lies issue, but um, what was it about it that kind of convinced you that it was worthy of such a of such an honor
3: well i mean you know on the on the on the subject of like bad 2023s this ending up on the cover of little white lies was actually a kind of silver lining of the the writer's strike because it was originally going to be coming out quite a bit earlier like um i think october time in 2023
4: it was the week after it was meant to be the week after it was september it was a really early date originally
3: we, we were doing our hundredth issue then, so there was kind of like no, you know, no, no films on the cover for this one. You know, we're having to sort of like sweep the boards a little bit. So the writer strike happened, and then the, and and that meant that poor things got pushed back into to January. And it was like oh, perfect timing for us to kind of pick up on that. And um, Hannah and I had been sort of snuck into a cheeky screening of it in July or something. So we we, we were like. Oh my God! We, you know, how can we align the planets to 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 make this happen? And then the writer's strike essentially did did that work for us. But yeah, no, it's. I think we we really wanted to do the favorite as a cover, like way back when, and it didn't work out. So this feels like a nice was coming back. You know, covering that base late later than than we'd anticipated. But yeah, you know, just on on the film itself. I mean, there's been so much praise for it now. It's won awards. This weekend, it picked up a load of Golden Globes and it won the, the top prize at Venice. And I'm sure there'll be more awards in coming in the coming weeks. It's like, you know, picking up lots of critics' prizes. And, you know, I feel that, like, it's not one of those films where I think you see people saying that its success is unjust and undeserved. I mean, it's, you know, it's the feeling I had when I originally saw it was one of thinking, wow, a major studio has, has backed this film and, in, in the form that that we're seeing it. Not not only because some of the, the, you know, there is some kind of extreme content in it. I mean, it is an 18 rated film. and But, like. The the structure of it as well, the the tone of it, the style of the performances, the the dialogue, the sets, none of it really screamed like studio picture. It it, it has none of that kind of soft manicuring that that often happens when you have a kind of shark skin suited, ponytailed producer on set who is kind of having to thumbs up thumbs down all these kind of and micromanage and stuff like that this is very much felt like a kind of a pure unadulterated vision and it is one of those blank check movies that you get after you've had a big success and you know the favorite was kind of radical in in, in and of itself but like probably poor things takes takes things to the next level in terms of you know how much freedom he's had to play the size of the of the sandbox he's had to kind of roll around in and what he's been able to do with these performances. Like, um, yeah, Emma Stone is, is extraordinary in the film. I think she's always been someone who has been, you know, a a draw, you know, she, she has a kind of movie star quality to her. And uh, yeah, in this film, we, we, we kind of, to put it lightly, get to see a a very new and exciting string to her, her bow really.
2: I mean, Hannah, I have to say that like, speaking to the team as I got to do in Venice the kind of below the line people and you've got to speak to Yorgos and we kind of know some people that worked on this like they all seemed quite nervous about how it was going to be received and quite surprised when I was kind of saying like oh no I think this is the best film I've seen this year they kind of <laughs> couldn't believe it but like were you surprised at kind of how such a strange sort of quite explicit film seems to have been like so widely embraced?
4: Yeah surprise and delighted I think, um, because, you know, as, as film critics, we see a lot of movies and we see often a lot of weird movies. And, you know, there is that thing of like, wow, this is absolutely great. But like, is anyone who isn't already a film nerd gonna really embrace it and there's always that thing of like you know when you check them out Tomatoes my scores and you have like the really high critic rating and then the really low audience rating and that's how you know you've got like a masterpiece on your hands and um, whereas poor things I think I remember us discussing this at Venice I, um, it was actually surprising that there was kind of no dissent at the festival normally every single film you'll have you know kind of a split reaction no matter how brilliant the film is or so there'll be some people going oh I didn't like it you know um, But actually, the weird thing about poor things was even the people that didn't really seem to like it at the festival were like oh i can totally appreciate the film it's just maybe not for me which is a, a kind of a rare thing to um see and i think we were a bit like when are we gonna get the people coming out who ardently hate this film and there have been a few i will say since um it's festival run but um it's really lovely and kind of heartening to see a film as strange and lewd as this be kind of embraced by so many people and not only kind of the Yorgos stans but also yeah just people that love Emma Stone being like yeah yeah I really liked it even though it's not maybe my normal kind of thing and hopefully you know it's the kind of film that someone would watch and then be like oh I want to watch more of this guy's stuff I think it's definitely Yorgos most accessible film in terms of content and tone i guess his older work is a lot meaner and i think a lot more uncomfortable um this is a lot more optimistic i think and and i that really works for me i think it's nice to see him work in a kind of different tone and to make something that really reflects its protagonist in such a kind of like joyful way because bella baxter is this you know very wide-eyed very naive very kind of forthright character in the film there's been some kind of criticisms around oh it's too nice for a Yorgos film we like it when he's meaner and I'm like well yes I totally understand that and I love it when he's kind of a bit of a meanie as well but also for this film I think it would have been really heartbreaking (laughs) to see that happen to a character who is so kind of lovely and so pure and so kind of in love with the world around her and uh, Emma Stone when she was accepting her golden globe said she thinks of the film as a romantic comedy because it's about a woman falling in love with life and I just thought that was such a lovely sweet way of describing the film because it is you know she sees all the beauty in the world and she sees you know great pain and great devastation and she decides she will challenge the things she can challenge and she will change the things that she thinks need to be changed but she doesn't become jaded and I think that maybe that's something I would like to kind of you know emulate in myself retaining that like Joy, at The good things in life, um, you know, something as simple as eating a pastel dinata or the kind of scene where she's like rich, she discovers how to dance, which I think is just such a moment of like giddiness within the film. And then I mean, of course, like, the big thing here is like the performances are just so wonderful and so fun. And it's one of those films where, you know, you look at the cast and you watch them and you think they clearly all just had the best time making this film. And I think you feel that as an audience member when you see a film like that. And I, Mark Rufflow has been one of my favorite actors for a long time, but I just think he is so good in this film. He is so despicable and so funny and um, so unafraid to be this like slimy little man. When you meet Duncan Wedderburn, you're like, oh no, he's going to corrupt her. He's going to break this girl's heart. I like the way the film kind of wrong-foots you at every turn. You know, it may, maybe because it's your gosh, you're expecting. these kind of horrible things to happen and uh, yeah I kind of think it's more subversive that actually it's about a woman just having like the time of her life (laughs) I think that in that in this day and age it's kind of almost more radical for that to happen yeah I I
2: loved how the the, you know a lot of the supporting performances you have people like a Gerard Carmichael or um Catherine Hunter that essentially just come along for one part of the journey and their performances. Almost seem to be from different films, but it just makes perfect sense because it's all about the world as viewed through. Bella's eyes and so people do seem very different to her she like learns more about you know that maybe like capitalism is bad and there's a thing called the patriarchy but like Like Barbie (laughs) (laughs) yes yes what did you think of that comparison to Barbie actually some people were saying it about like oh yeah this is the year of women with an identity crisis learning Mm -hmm. hard truths and evolving as people
4: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a valid comparison. I think I like this more than Barbie and I really like Barbie, but I think that, I don't know, this maybe feels a bit more sincere and maybe it is that thing of like, you know, Barbie is ultimately a Mattel toy advert. I mean, it's a great advert and I love the film and I gave it a very, very positive review, but at the end of the day, it is a toy advert. Whereas this maybe feels a bit more sincere. And I think Yorgos is someone who has such a clear love of art, and I think to me, the film like, reflects that thing of like, when you're a kid, you're so open to the world and you're so open to experiences and art and music and people. And you kind of lose that as you get older, especially as a woman, you know, you'd learn to be scared of people and to be wary. And while that is valid in many ways, I think the film's open-armed, like pursuit of all these different things that bella discovers i just think it it really reflects that thing that we all desperately try to cling on to that curiosity and that to me makes it maybe a, a slightly better take on the coming of age genre than, than barbie but um that's they're both very good films in my opinion and i think it's also like you know we've kind of hinted at it as but 2023 wasn't a very good year for many people for many reasons. And I think that I maybe needed some like pure escapism. And this did kind of feel like that in many ways. And I remember like when I spoke to Yorgos for the magazine, I, I said to him, like, you know, this is the first film you've given a happy ending and not to spoil it. It's not really a spoiler, but. Um he kind of laughed and he was like, yeah, well, you know, we spent so much time with this protagonist and we all fell in love with her and we couldn't think of any other way that we would want to end that story. And I think that's just, you know, it, it's that kind of like fantasy, I think, that really appeals to me, this idea of like, we can't have that happy ending in real life. No one kind of gets that happy ending. And so, yeah, maybe sometimes it's nice that the film gets that that thing that none of us actually get in real life I don't know I mean
2: I I, I'm wow (laughs) wait I
4: I think I think the film has reminded me what a kind of hopeless romantic I am which is like very funny considering the film we're about to talk about after this but but yeah I I just think it's not only incredibly delightful to watch it's just when you unpick it like you know you talking to all the craftspeople just the level that they're working at and their imagination and the way that Yorgos is able to bring all that creativity together such a like cohesive way where it doesn't feel like anything is kind of competing for your attention it all just like works like a symphony it's like it is an orchestra you're watching whether it's you know the costume design the music it all just kind of comes together in such a cohesive way and even though it's very different from his earlier films you can still tell it's the same person behind the camera and i think that is just what what an incredible skill to have to be able to work at like the micro budget level and then with many many millions of dollars of budget and not cock it up like you know just just great. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's it's a film where the details is just, you pick out new ones upon every rewatch. I think I'm on three, maybe four times I've seen it. And every new time I kind of see something in a room, I see a tapestry, I see kind of a coordination of the costumes that just like makes my heart sing. David, before we move on, any like little details about poor things that uh, you were enriched by? Apologies for the pun.
3: Oh, I, yeah, no, I think I think it is it is a film about those little details and you kind of, the way that they have kind of Built the world, this kind of impressionistic version of of Europe that is kind of inspired by classical painting and steampunk, and the world that it kind of exists in is very a, a kind of grab bag of influences, but it's still it's still very convincing and authentic. There is no kind of pastiche there, like in Portugal. You know, they're, they're, they're in Lisbon. The first stop of Bella and Duncan's tour of Europe is Lisbon, and it's like this weird retro futurist sun bleached wonderland that has cable cars and and (laughs) like you know like overhead cable cars and things like that so it's 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 it's, it's, you know that that stuff's really interesting you know some yeah as you mentioned some of the little supporting performances I love you know I, I I was really delighted to see um the great German actress Hannah Shigula, who hasn't been talked about enough and I, I, I feel has been robbed of a supporting, uh, best supporting actor, actress performance in her small role as an as a elder lady of leisure who they meet on a cruise ship who is very much happy with her, her life and comfortable with the prospect of death and gives Bella some of the best kind of philosophical pearls in the film. I think overall, I I think, you know, talking about this idea of its sort of connectivity to Lanthimos' previous films, my reaction while watching it was the way that it looks and feels is very different because those early films are very kind of cold and clinical and I mean, you know, his his interest as a filmmaker is this idea of. I mean, he talks about in the interview; it's all about like the rules of society, how we abide, but also, you know, he's he 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 is someone who's very interested in psychology and how our surroundings build us as people and and how we adapt to the families we're in and the people who who bring us up and how we kind of take on ideas from other people. And you know, Dogtooth, which was his kind of big breakthrough film, is you know, very much that film about the family who are keeping their, their daughters in confinement and, t- and, and, and giving them a, com- a kind of alternative descriptions of life and the present and society. And then sort of in the end, they're kind of thrown out into the real world. And it's kind of like, in, you know, the, I think the similarities between Dogtooth and, and Poor Things are really fascinating. Yeah, Dogtooth is a much, as you say, it's a much darker and bleaker film. Than this one, but this is kind of almost showing what if we used that same formula but showed a slightly different side to it. I think one interesting thing about the ending, also, you know, you talked, Hannah, you talked about the happy ending of the film. Yeah, I've seen a lot of critics talk about this, this, this ending and and how it made them feel, and and yeah, some some people have said it's too happy, and I think that there are there are enough elements of this film of like fantasy and projection, and you you, you not necessarily needing to take. The actual actions on screen, like very literally, and you know, we're, we're we're inside Bella's head here. We're kind of experiencing things in a way, and there there is all these intimations of, of dreams and fantasies in the film. And you know, what it reminded me of, if if you can remember, do you, do you guys remember the ending of um, King of Comedy where Rupert Pupkin is like performing in front of an audience, and he's 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 you know, it's a is it a dream? Is it a fantasy? And I, and I got this kind of element of. Of, of that from poor things like it kind of gives you this little hint that like you know is this too happy to be real so there i think there's still this like element of darkness in there that he, he kind of just floats out very subtly
4: maybe she you know because when we when we meet bella or i mean not bella she's victoria blessington when we first meet her but Maybe, maybe, maybe that opening scene is actually the film and everything else is a fantasy, you know. I like that. I, 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 I like how I hadn't thought of it like that, but I like that idea. Oh, you need maybe... to do one of those
2: YouTube Explained videos.
4: <laughs> David does not need to do one of those YouTube explain videos.
2: <laughs> but I mean, I, I I just love this. And, you know, even more to get into in the magazine, I think we could talk for like the full hour, but we probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah let's get some scores on this a spoiler alert for me 555 five, five. Uh, moving on <laughs> David what about you what is your in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect
3: I would say that probably i would go 455 five on this one I will admit that I've been a little bit mixed on some of Lanthimos previous films I, I, I had a I had a hint of skepticism even though I think that I was very excited to see Willem Dafoe and uh, Hannah there, Jared Carmichael, and working with him on this on this book thing, and and the, as well like the literary source, the first film that he's made from a from an actual book, and you know a classic book, a very weird book that uh, you know many people said couldn't really be adapted. So all those things seem very exciting for me so yeah it's a four-five-five. Five.
2: god it's just it's, it's a bit like that meme for me of kind of like you're the man's getting more and more excited and his mind being blown where it's like Yorgos Lanthimos Gerard Carmichael an <laughs> unfilmable book the marketing team is worried <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah the, it, that, that's the key. The
4: marketing team is worried. <laughs> that's how you know you've got a heater. When I heard like the, the, the marketing team for May, December were a bit concerned, it was like, let's go. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I, can't, I, I think I've seen this three times now and I think I'd go maybe five, four, five. Maybe that's a bit weird, but I mean, fuck it. That's how I feel. So um, yeah, Emma Stone is one of my all-time favorite actresses. She's probably the reason or one of the reasons i Started writing about films because I saw Easy A when I was like fifteen, and I was like, "This woman is everything I would like to be in life." Yeah, I find her a hugely kind of inspiring figure creatively, and she's just so funny. Like in this film, in The Curse, in interviews, she's just so charismatic. And I'm sad we didn't get to talk to her for the mag because of the strike. Because I, yeah, I just think she's delightful and she's so talented. And I could talk, I could have a podcast that's just me talking about how much I love Emma Stone. Um, But yeah
2: wonderful picture well i mean it's just such like a stacked week it feels like a such a complex film about a young woman uh comes along every couple of months and this week we've got two so yeah next up it's priscilla
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Through Priscilla's eyes, Sophia Coppola tells the unseen side of a great American myth in Elvis and Priscilla's long courtship and turbulent marriage, from a German army base to his dream world estate at Graceland. But first up, I spoke to cinematographer Philippe Lessord on bringing this complex vision to screen. It's uh, so lovely to meet you. I was just reading yeah. a full book on um, Sophia Coppola by Hannah Strong. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to to hear your words in that.
8: Uh, yeah, it's very, it's very nice. You know, I discovered the book a month ago. So it's very nice to see, you know, all this picture and Marie Antoinette in translation. The film I didn't do, but it's very, you know, under, under all the interpretation uh, or all of film and all research. That's very beautiful to see that.
2: But you've, you've first worked with her on The Beguiled, is that right? Or had you, uh, do you collaborate
8: yeah that's, uh, with... uh, I, I worked before a uh, few months before uh, I work on commercial her, but I work on, uh, on uh, La Traveilletta on Opera right
2: and then, like instantly like do you what do you think it was that you both uh, like connected with in each other that you wanted to continue this collaboration
8: uh me on my side because I love a movie so mm. I knew it was something very important.
2: And also it was interesting
8: uh, when you meet uh, uh, so, some people like Sophia that you, she has a knowledge of cinema and uh, she has a strong uh, idea of um, edit and, uh, and number of shots she wants. If you see a movie, she she makes strong de- decision about you know how many shots for the scene and that, that stay. Uh, on all the film I work with her she don't cover a lot of uh, a lot of setup on the scene because it's a, it's a mix of the budget of the number of days the number of scenes you have to shoot mm-hmm. and you know this one we shoot on 30 days which uh, you know is nothing compared to you know, uh, the number of scene. so she has a strong idea of, about you know I want to stay with Priscilla. And that's my main my, my main goal. So I'm not going to cover everything. So and that's the beauty of a, of a film. You, know, you are not, you know, you don't have, you know, you know, crane shot and uh, and, and 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 uh, 200, you know, close up and detail and pick up is is one shot, and that is strong commitment.
2: Yeah, I mean for a director. I mean the way it stays with Priscilla, but it also stays so much of it within this like you know like a beautiful prison of of Graceland. I mean. How was it kind of capturing what uh, what the kind of sense of that of that home of that like estate would be?
8: Because uh, a a mango when we talk about Priscilla, it was uh, about. because I asked her but I forget uh, uh, exactly the word she described to me and I, when I started to read the script I said can you describe in one world the film I will need to ask her again but it was something about femininity or something like that mm-hmm. so that's my, my goal as a cinematographer but I think it's, it's a different world, but she, she described on one world. and i it become become uh, how intimate you want to be with a character and it's always a question for her is who's looking this scene so if it's about Priscilla we are with Priscilla. And they have a number of scenes and we don't we don't cover anybody else. It's about her. So that, you know, a strong statement uh, when you show that. But it's also you you have to bring some magic. So you, know, you arrive in Gresland, you you need to bring some magic and what world she's coming from Germany. And you uh, know, and this world was very, you know, in Germany, you, know, you try to imagine, you know, end of 50s, you know, who is grey and dark. And, and, uh, all the color are uh, brown, green compared to suddenly grassland is full of color, the car are fantastic, the design is completely different. So, you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chaos between these two a world. and uh, suddenly grassland has become the sun, but it's become a prison. but she didn't know that.
2: I mean, one of the uh, scenes that I just uh, absolutely adored is the one with the fireworks and, like, just how, like, you can kind of really, like, it hits you in the heart of, like, how magical a moment of, like, uh, that would be. I mean, what was the kind of key to capturing that?
8: When you read the scene, you know it was very simple. Mm-hmm. It was a uh, fireworks. The play again. You know the gang is playing again, and the kiss. Uh, it shows her in silhouette. That was a goal. Mm-hmm. So for she, she's very so She's very shy overall in general, and uh, always on the script. And the kiss is always in silhouette. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always being writing this, uh, specific scene on the on the screen. So we knew uh, how we handled. It was a very something romantic. About that, uh, mm. Sofia. Sofia very romantic, so uh, she loves the idea of the, uh, the first love and and the true love. So that was, you know, it's a mix of joy and excitement, but also connection for the first time.
2: Is I mean, like on a less kind of romantic. Is there any like practical difficulties that actually come in simply because you have a lead actress who is, uh, you know, very small. <laughs> acting against um I think what is Jacob alordi something like six five or something? Yeah, 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 yeah.
8: It was a it was a first it was the first question even before received a squid. It was the first question from Sophia. Yeah, do you have a, do you have any problem, you know, when we shoot with, with, uh, you, with a different eye to I didn't know it was Jacob. cop, so I mm-hmm. know you you put uh yes is sure is more complicated, but he helped the story in the same time. He mm-hmm. yeah, helped, you know, to have a, uh, you know. And, uh, you know, you use something very, you know, easy, you know, you put, you know, uh, uh, Apple box and, and sometimes she was wearing, you know, bigger shoes when you do, we don't see her uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it,
2: it does feel watching it there's like a huge amount of like trust in Kaylee because so often the camera is so fixed on her, it's so close to her, it's so intimate to her. Um, was part of like creating the intimacy, like also like, you know, physically having the camera being like within her proximity. But
8: it's also uh, yes for sure because uh, you you could shoot you know close up in such a different way you mm-hmm. should uh, you know wide lens, mid, and longer lens. And if you have a camera you know 20 centimeters uh, from your face, you know with a wide lens or you know or something compared to your eyes with more, but uh, 40, 50, or something with a longer lens, it's a different uh, it's a different. Uh, I think emotion, you know, when I did all the tests with this camera, I try large format, you know, normal camera. And uh, I found, for example, the large format will give me a different distance between the actor and uh, with the land I used to, to work. So I found it, uh, I need to find the right combination for the actor to be, you know, not, not too close, but on the right distance. So you feel intimate with them. The choice of the lens was very important because you need to find something very delicate and sensible about about her character so i want for this type of uh, ultra speed from panavision to give this sense on uh, something very fragile about life and uh, love
2: we have a huge amount of um footage obviously of priscilla and of elvis from the time were there any images of them that you saw uh, of them in real life that kind of uh, in- informed the way that you wanted this to look as a
8: referent, i saw i saw a lot of uh, uh, on footage uh super I, I tried to understand what connection these two, char- these two characters these are so that that i think that was the goal even you know the uh, the Superhead footage you know you can find online It's very fun and 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 uh, but i tried to, to you know what was the connection and that that was the goal but i i think it's about you know for sofia was, you know the so loneliness of this character to the jail, the, you know, the jail, oh, she's golden cage.
2: And it's also just kind of made so much sadder given that Lisa Marie's past. and like, so even like those like beautiful scenes where she's got her new baby, now they've got well, like, that uh,
8: well, you know, That's that very sad, you know. When I learned the story, that was very sad because I, uh, you know, you remember, you know, it's a character, you shoot a baby, and this baby is passing away, you know. You know, like on, on light, I I find that quite very sad.
2: It's yeah, it's one of the most beautiful true. moments in the film, I think, to me, when she's you know going to the hospital to have her baby, but of course she has to look perfect and like you know yeah, yeah, okay. be so beautiful. But yeah, I think there's something beautifully feminine and sweet about that moment.
8: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I've seen, you know, especially Priscilla, and it was difficult, very difficult for her. You know, she, you know, she's she started on the on the on the morning at fourteen, and she's pregnant. You know, two days later. And she divorced, you know, one day later every day. So, so emotionally it was something very fascinating to, uh, to see the transformation on, a, on an actress. And you know, some, some, uh, some moments are very uh, uh, emotional for, even for us as a technician to be on set, to be, uh, because I operate the camera and to watch it in front of your eyes. So it's very beautiful to see that, to be able to, to catch that
2: it's It's such a convincing aging process was one of the things I just found so remarkable of like she really does look fourteen when she's fourteen, yeah. and you know by the end you kind of do believe this is a fully grown woman. Is there anything that's being done from a cinematography point of view to kind of help her mature?
8: you have an, you have
2: a fantastic actress in front of you you follow let's see no, of course you
8: have a, you have a question about age. I think you have to to come from her. You know, you know, you don't want you know to trick and post production and, and special effect that you oh she has to look younger or oh, she has to look older. You know, with makeup from prosthetic is, is I think is a bad a bad performance. You know, when I shot um, uh, the Grandmaster, it was uh, the the film with uh, Wonka. wai it was a question the to, to age the actor or not, and uh, we never did it. It's passing uh, fifteen years on the on the on the film, and we never we never use any trick. It's about dialogue, emotion.
2: I mean, it's it's such a beautiful film, but I think beside kind of learning about Priscilla's story and kind of putting this out to the world, is there something that you are particularly proud of in terms of a moment in it?
8: I think probably uh, uh, probably uh, uh, the beginning, the first scene on the bar, and uh, and the two last scene at the end. Last scene when she leaves, you, you make you cry at the end, and right. she's on the, on the car. Yeah. And uh, and a uh, separation on the on Las Vegas bedroom. I love this scene.
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful scene. It's such a beautiful film. I can't. I've I've seen it twice. I can't wait to see it again. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, Thank you so much for your time. Same, and I don't want to unlove it. <laughs> like, maybe I'll just let the memory be preserved in amber. <laughs> So Hannah, you literally wrote the book on Sophia Coppola. I mean, what are the sort of Sophia signatures that you think Priscilla has?
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess when I heard that this was a story she was going to be adapting from Priscilla's memoir, Elvis and Me, it seemed like a very natural fit. I think at first I did wonder if it was going to be too similar to My Antoinette, which also has this thing of a young woman at 14 meeting this huge figure and ending up being swept away in this life of luxury and madness and learning how to kind of toe the line and how to kick back against the line on occasion and I think that Sophia has always been interested in the kind of dark side of fame or not even like the dark side of fame but just the kind of aspects of fame that she may have struggled with herself growing up in such a famous family and also the realities of being a young woman trying to grow up in that environment because as a young woman you know we kind of discussed it already but you know you're you're forced to exist under very strenuous circumstances a lot of the time and I think that only increases when you're in the public eye as you know there's a lot of good things that come from that and I would love to have Priscilla's wealth, but, you know, I think growing up, from being a teenager under such public scrutiny must have been incredibly difficult and I think that that is one of the things that Sophia has always been interested in exploring on screen so I was very excited I think it's definitely a story that was in her wheelhouse and it was just a kind of matter of if she could do it in a way that would feel sufficiently different from her other films or if not sufficiently different just kind of interesting you know I think it's she's not she's a filmmaker who knows what knows what she makes and she makes them exceedingly well and I think that she's very unique unique in that way for a kind of female filmmaker because I think this runs across all art that women make there's sometimes this expectation for you to reinvent yourself every single time particularly in pop music female artists are expected to have a new persona every time they release a new album in a way that I think men maybe aren't held to that standard obviously someone like David Bowie is in a example of someone who did that, I was own accord. But yeah, I mean, no one's going to look at Christopher Nolan making Oppenheimer and go, oh, I can't believe he's making another film about a tortured white man. Uh, you know, so it seems a bit weird that people would have that criticism of Sofia Coppola. But yeah, I was excited. As always, she was working under the kind of difficulties of trying to make an independent film, uh, a truly independent film, when the... Industry is not that hospitable to it anymore, uh, if it's ever been. And working with Kaylee Spaney, who was kind of an unknown in such a big role, I think, you know, kind of was probably another thing that made it challenging for her to kind of get financing and things on board. But um, she she pulled it off. uh, God bless her. And I think that after On the Rocks, which was maybe a little bit of a disappointment, for me, I mean, I like the film, but I think it's it's maybe not as strong as her other films. This was like such a welcome return to form, I think, in terms of the craft of the film and the kind of approach that she takes, because coming to a person that everyone knows, everyone has a perception of in popular culture, is, you know, it's always going to be such a challenge. But the way that I think she handles Priscilla is so delicate and so sensitive without kind of feeling like it's just hagiography trying to kind of like shame (laughs) the the spirit of uh, elvis presley or something i think it's a very even-handed attempt to say something about not only their relationship but kind of power dynamics between men and women particularly with age gaps and also just yeah the kind of hoops that you have to jump through as a woman as a woman in the 50s and 60s as a woman now um i think that it's yeah it's such a beautifully balanced film is how i would describe it and um I just loved being in this world. I always I always think of her films as being so tactile and you just kind of, you don't just like watch it. You kind of live in it for like 90 minutes. And I think this is kind of a beautiful example of that. She she very much like Yorgos just always assembles the most talented group of creatives to work with from Philippe Lassard to um, Stacey Batter who did the costumes, which are just incredible in this film. I think, yeah, that she is a real person who cares about every single detail you're seeing on that camera on that on that screen and if it's not perfect it's not going to be on on there so yeah that's my that's my very long-winded way of saying I really like this film
2: (laughs) yeah no it's 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 a wonderful film and it's so kind of committed to like I think something quite truthful about Priscilla's experience where like, we don't shy away from the difficulty and the sort of abusive elements and the kind of difficult power dynamics that she eventually broke free on. But like it admits that like Elvis Presley showing up when you're a teenager and sweeping you away to his like giant, estate in you know in memphis would feel magical a lot of the time and like that to kind of deny that and to kind of do a elvis bad actually would have been i think such a terrible betrayal of her story but david i'm curious i mean obviously last year elvis was like a huge uh hit both like financially and I think it, I mean, at least got a lot of nominations. Uh, like, you think this is sort of helped or hindered by the fact that we've had these kind of two perspectives so close together?
3: Well, I mean, I think one of Priscilla's major strengths is it sells itself as a biopic or like, it, or, or not sells itself, but presents as a biopic. You know, a, a real life subject, it's based on a, on mem- a memoir. Its main strength is that it, that it kind of doesn't follow the, co- the same kind of conventions and same route as most traditional biopics. The, the, the sort of biographical film, the biopic, is, is one of my least favourite sort of subgenres. I mean, I really, I find it very pointless. You know, when, when I watch these films, what what I'm thinking is that they've been made because they, they come part and parcel with a very strong marketing hook and a, and a, and a pre-existing audience. I find that they have to, these films have to work even harder to sort of justify themselves as being more than just kind of cash-ins on, you know, delivering some, something to, to, to some people who or, who already exist and who already want it. So, I mean, Elvis, for me, seemed to sort of do that. And I think there's been, like, in, in this award season in particular, there's been some good, really good buyer picks and some and some not-so-good ones. And I think that, like, this, this kind of sits in a bracket with something like Ferrari, for me, in that Priscilla and Ferrari are films where I think the makers have... Actually, things they want to say beyond the subject matter, and they're trying to talk more broadly about the world and love, and you know, men and women, and fame, and and business, and 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 all these really interesting subjects. I mean, you know, I'm I'm, I'm being very broad when I'm talking about them here, but and I think in the film in 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 in, uh, in Priscilla, it's much more kind of nuanced about what they're saying. Whereas like you have films like Elvis and maybe something like Bradley Cooper's Maestro as well. The, the the issue with Bradley Cooper's Maestro is it's desperately trying to make a profound statement about the person, about Leonard Bernstein. We need to say something about him and his genius. And I think that that idea and going into a film with that as your brief is always going to be a hiding to nothing because you cannot, you know, we cannot really say profound things about people because you know people are just mysterious and we never we never truly know and it's just going to come across as weird i think and sophia coppola i think in this film although i think she there's definitely a kind of profound respect for priscilla presley her trials and the strange relationship she had with uh with elvis i never really felt that she's putting her on a pedestal she's in love with her she she wants she wants to exonerate her for something or even though it is giving her side of the story it never felt it never felt like as you say this isn't the kind of elvis evil actually film it's like it's a very kind of you know not not ambivalent but just it's 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 very it's more it's more kind of even-handed in how it presents the the sort of relative merit pros and cons of of people's decisions and and it's just far more interesting for it I mean my my memory of it maybe correct me if I'm wrong here but like I think the sort of vast majority of the films occurs in with the two, with Elvis and Priscilla in bed just sort of talking and having these kind of strange interactions some of them sort of sexual but some of the, others is that the 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 bedroom is this kind of sanctum where they have the you know they do their kind of important discussions about how what their relationship is going to be like and I really got a sense of like you know reminded me of something like a film I absolutely love, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kent, the, the Fassbinder film, which all takes place in a single apartment, and you get that you, you get that sense of claustrophobia, and, and the, that film is all about the kind of mi- the the micro power plays between these these people, and and how the kind of balance of power in a relationship just is constantly fluctuating. You know, there, there is a sort of dom and sub almost uh, style vibe to that film. And I think it sort of seeps through into Priscilla as well, where you kind of it's all about like who you know who has got the kind of who is holding the cards, and in this case, it's often Elvis in the end because of because of his status and his fame. it You know, it allows him to have these decisions, but it feels very kind of it's it's, it's fascinating to see how what, what Priscilla does and how she kind of manages this this situation. As you say, it's not presented as like Graceland is not this kind of dark haunted house full of horrible people. I mean, there are, there are some horrible people there and she doesn't have, you know, there are elements of it where she doesn't have a great time, but she, she loves it as well. I mean, it's almost, I'm watching the Sopranos at the moment and I'm seeing the Sopranos everywhere. And even with this, I think there's, there's almost a bit of a kind of Carmela Tony vibe to the to the relationship of like, you know, what are the reasons that we're in this relationship for? Like, why are we doing this? So yeah,
4: they no, called them. Uh, they they the Memphis Mafia. You know his his acolytes. Well, there you go.
3: Well, there you go. <laughs> so you know there is that there is that connection. But you know he has got that thing of like you know he's venerated in the same way as Tony Soprano, while his flaws are, are quite obvious for all to see. But you can't you know nobody can really talk about them. But yeah, no, I think in in within the Sofia Coppola canon, this is definitely one of I think one of her strongest films. I, I, I mean I, I love I love uh, Marie Antoinette. I love the bling ring. I haven't actually watched Lost in Translation since, since I saw it when it came out. So that, that's on my that's a kind of long time rewatch opportunity. I'm a bit nervous, but I remember loving it when it came out.
2: Same, and I don't want to unlove um, it. <laughs> like, maybe I'll just let the memory be preserved in amber.
4: I mean, I, I as someone who obviously spent a lot of time with that film and with her films generally, whilst I was writing the book, yeah, I do think Lost in Translation is, is one of those films that there are great things about it, but it's very much she was however old like 30 when she made that film and I think that she has matured so much as a person and um even though you know stylistically they're still definitely you know it's you can tell it's the same filmmaker but I think her ideas and her understanding of the world have kind of developed so much since then which is just the nature of growing up you know and understanding how the world works there's some stuff in that film that has not aged well there's a lot of kind of racial stuff that by her own admission she says I thought it was fine you know, and that comes from that perspective of being a very rich white girl who grew up in a very insulating environment and wasn't talking to people. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's another reason she related to Priscilla. There's there's an interesting criticism I've seen of the film um, where people kind of say, "Oh, well, I didn't really feel like I knew her at the end of it." And I'm like, I mean, a what's our right to ever know? another person <laughs> um, especially a celebrity and um, B I don't think that's necessarily what motivates her filmmaking I think she's a very mysterious person um, even having now met her finally after all these years I don't think she's someone who ever gives away more than she is comfortable with and I think having been in the spotlight for such a long time she's developed quite a strong sense of how much or how little that is going to be and I think that Priscilla is not a film that is trying to make you understand who Priscilla Presley is or you know kind of give us this like great insight into her mindset i think like david says it's, it's making much kind of wider commentary or, or wider kind of bringing up wider questions which i think is more interesting anyway but also on on the kind of subject of elvis because i think jacob elordi is like really brilliant in this film and i think in a lesser performer's hands it could have been a very like silly performance <laughs> and a very kind of over the top very caricature performance of elvis um but actually he does this really quite remarkable thing where you understand the kind of immense power and charisma that he had, but also you do understand the kind of, he had kind of been through the same thing as, Priscilla in that he was very young when he became so famous and was so kind of coddled and restricted that he he grew up under such kind of rules and restrictions, especially from um, Colonel Tom Parker, that he is in this kind of state of uh, arrested development. And at some point she outpaces him in that she realizes, you know, I don't need to live In your world, I don't need to play by your rules. I am capable of being my own person away from you. And um, he can't really come to terms with that. And I think that is the great tragedy here is that she becomes this person who is not able to get what she needs emotionally from him. And, you know, there's a beautiful scene where they're in the back of a car in uh, Las Vegas. And we'd seen them at the beginning of the film going to Vegas for the first time. And it's this great moment of romance. And then we see them silently sitting side by side. And he's smoking this big cigar. And he's got his like classic Elvis jumpsuit like thing on and his sunglasses. And it's just this moment where you can see the realization has like dawned on her that she doesn't have to live like this. But he does like, you know, he can't break out of whatever this is and we all know how that kind of story ends we've all seen the other Elvis film
2: but yeah. do we know I've had some conspiracies <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean uh, may, maybe he's
4: now maybe living not at in, this point but... <laughs>
2: maybe li- living
4: in um, yeah on some island working for the CIA or whatever the whatever the conspiracy theory was uh,
2: <laughs> uh, we should get some points on this absolutely lovely film uh, David do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect
3: yeah uh, yeah, yeah, no. I've only I've seen it once, so I, I probably need to see it again to have a fuller picture. But I'm probably going to give it like fours across the board. I think in, on a different week it might have been fives, but just compared to to Poor Things, I think it's it's a it's a more delicate and refined film. And yeah, I'm I'm big into Sofia uh, Coppola, and I quite liked On the Rocks, and I loved The Beguiled. So yeah, I've I've pretty much gone through her entire filmography there. So. I mean, the film, I, I understand, has been a you know, pretty, pretty decent success so far. And I hope Kaylee does get on, the, on some awards ballots somewhere, because I think it is a really remarkable performance by her. And I don't know what you guys think about this, but it's like, I, I think that you, you kind of, you, you maybe have to work a little bit harder to see the qualities of her performance, but they're definitely there. And, 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 I, and by that, I mean, she's working on, on quite a sort of subtle plane of of kind of withholding and reacting to situations in in a way that isn't kind of big melodrama oscar oscar clip type moments so but i think that 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 sort of nuance is really difficult especially for a performer who's so young and i guess relatively inexperienced so yeah i think i I think she's going to be huge
2: which is ironic because she's so
4: tiny. Going to,
3: going to, <laughs> to fight aliens, isn't she? Yeah. yeah,
4: she's got Alien and Civil War, Alex Garland's new film with Kirsten Dunst this year. So I, I can see her being poised for huge things. Um, we also spoke to her for the website and she's a delightful human being. So smart and so switched on and seems to genuinely care about filmmaking which is not always a given in this industry nowadays so yeah no i I wish her all the success i think yeah it's such a subtle performance it's not a big showy awards performance which is maybe why she's kind of a little bit under the radar as well but i think yeah i think she's really great and her and jacob have such like good chemistry because the film is really just It's there are other characters, but it's mostly them having conversations and them having moments. So I think you know it it really does rely on that kind of two hander chemistry, and they they definitely have it. Well, given that they have such great chemistry,
2: uh, your scores I imagine are going to be pretty great, true
4: Yeah, I think four, five, five, maybe. I've seen it three times now, same as Poor Things, and I think I. Quite happily watch it again. I mean, there's so much we didn't even have time to get into here. I mean, the music and everything. Like, I think, yeah, it's just. Yeah, Sophia, I think, is kind of a divisive filmmaker. She has a lot of fans, but she also has a lot of people who can't get on board with her, much like Wes Anderson, I think, because um, she does what she does in her style and if you don't like it at this point it's kind of like well I think maybe you just don't like the filmmaker (laughs) um, but you know maybe maybe there are some converts who've only come to her off the back of Priscilla but I think yeah 455 I I, I really love this film and um, I think it's very special and I feel very protective of it because I think it challenges so much about our ideas of like celebrity biopics and and kind of what a biopic needs to be or needs to do
2: yeah i think i'm probably was for coming into it there's always a slight bit of me that is wary when a biopic has been made in close collaboration with the subject themselves and but you know that wasn't you know there was nothing to worry about in that regard because like I think you said earlier, like, this film doesn't kind of put Priscilla onto, like, a pedestal, a bit like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, where they go, like, hey, what if we do, and, like, and then they <laughs> pretend we will rock you. Um, nothing as silly as that. Uh, probably a five in enjoyment. Some of that does come down to, sitting behind um, a pair of journalists at the first screening and one of them turning to the other and saying, uh, do you think Elvis is going to be in this? And the other one looked at them incredulously and said, like, what do you think it's all going to be about what happened on the set of Naked Gun? <laughs> Every time. <laughs> it was a... So I was kind of lightly tittering throughout all of that and I had the most wonderful time. Uh, yeah, probably a four in retrospect. I think it could go up to a five. Um, just feels a bit unfair to give out two fives in in one week but i i i really couldn't recommend it enough but um and it has been very nice that a lot of non-film nerdy friends um have been asking me about this one so i think it's going to do pretty well before we say farewell to our listeners we've uh, got our one last thing you guys are going to give us some non-movie recommendations David, do you want to go first? What is the non-movie that uh, you suggest people seek out this week after seeing these two masterpieces, of course?
3: At the beginning of the year, I tend to kind of get on a little bit of a tip of reading a novel that is is potentially going to kind of turn into a film, a bit of deep research. And I was kind of over Christmas looking at things incoming and there was a tweet that I saw that suggested that the next Paul Thomas Anderson film with which was going to star Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be another uh, uh, adaptation of Thomas Pynchon the elusive American novelist and he'd already made he's already made an inherent vice and the suggestion was he was going to do do another one of his novels which is like an 80s set novel called Vineland and so yeah I've, I'm sort of deep into reading Thomas Pynchon's Vineland. And it's really good. Like it, his stuff is very, very kind of tripped out, wackadoo, conspiracy within conspiracy. You know, plot all over the place. Yeah, I'm having a really fun time reading that novel. Like it's it's from the '80s, so I'm, you know it's a it's a it's an oldie in many ways. I cannot see any way that this could be made into a film. There's like the the way it's structured. It kind of has these weird concentric chapters where you kind of get to a point and then you kind of go back and see how they got to that point and then you kind of follow a different character there's no main character it's just kind of like thingy corpse um exquisite corpse exquisite corpse type you should know that yeah I should know that yeah it's like an exquisite (laughs) corpse type structure where you kind of like the every every chapter is a sort of like goes on a, a, a like it doesn't follow continuously from the story of the previous chapter but kind of picks a detail and kind of goes off in a different direction so I mean i this might it might even be a conspiracy that p t a is even doing this film. I mean God knows you know what it what it would look like and who would see it but um yeah it's it it's a really it's been really fun reading reading that, so that's my that's my kind of weird non film I have so well. kind
2: of had a bit of an inadvertent parallel with you because I just read Blood Meridian, which they've announced that they're going to uh try and adapt again. Not I'll really believe sure it how. when I
4: see it. <laughs> Been but i by did. that one before.
2: I, did. Yeah. Yeah, I think several people, but that? one James of the
4: most. James Franco. Yes, we we was the I was Bullet, Dodged yeah, Bullet. Yeah, one of the most
2: cursed potential adaptations <laughs> of all time was that at one point James Franco was going to make it, and, you know, starring Dave Franco. So, <laughs> just so when it looks bad out of the window and when you turn on the news, just think how much worse it could have been. <laughs> 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 uh, Hannah what about you what is your non-movie recommendation this week
4: well I, the thing I want to recommend actually ends on Friday when this goes out so I, I feel a bit bad recommending it the, the first thing I, I will mention though is uh, Annie Baker's Infinite Life which will be finishing its run at the National Theatre on Friday I'm sorry everyone I can't can't get you tickets but um, if, it, if it comes back or anything if you have a chance to see it somewhere else um, it's really wonderful it's quite a short play I think it's just under two hours and it's about these women and a man, but mainly these women who are at a pain management clinic in Northern California. And it's just... A lot of kind of conversations that they're having about their pain and about their lives. And it's so kind of simple in premise, but it's so, I found it so kind of profoundly moving and unexpectedly so. I wasn't expecting to be as kind of um, struck by it emotionally as I was. And I think that Annie Baker is someone who we're probably going to be hearing a lot more about Um although she's kind of already very well known within the playwriting and theater community, Um, her first film, Janet Planet, or yeah, that's it. Janet Planet. I always want to say Planet Janet in the, in the kind of voice of uh, damn it Janet. But um, yeah, she, she's made her first film, which apparently is very, very good according to Charles Romesco, our man in New York. So I really, really, really want to watch that now because like, yeah, I just think she's such a kind of clear eyed writer and so observant and so funny and yeah, I could just kind of sing her praises until has cow's come home. But um, the other recommendation I will give since that has finished is um, I went to see Ryu- Ryuichi Sakamoto's live VR show, which is going on at the moment. Obviously, he passed away last year. But this is kind of a posthumous performance of um, this show, Kagami, which is a uh, you're given a kind of VR headset and you keep that on and he is projected in front of you at the piano and you see him give this sort of 50-minute performance of his kind of greatest hits. Um, and there's kind of these visuals which come in of kind of snow falling and leaves and everything. Um, and this is at the Roundhouse in Camden. Um, but it was at, it first premiered at Manchester. Anyway, it, it will probably be doing the rounds for a while, probably traveling around a bit. Yeah, I I only went because I was covering it for the BBC Um, and actually I was surprised again at how moving I found it Um, the technology is far from perfect you know I think VR is kind of still in its sort of infancy and you do notice the cracks if you get you can kind of walk up to the piano and like look and if you get close up to where Sakamoto is sat you can see he looks a bit like a sim from the computer game It's, it's a bit kind of uncanny valley um but the music is just fantastic and i guess it's you know he was such an embracer of technology and such a kind of um curious person who really saw the potential in how technology could move us forward as a people but also the kind of risks that come with that and the threat that that comes with that and um yeah i just yeah i think it's it's a very special thing to kind of hear that music in a kind of group of like 20 people. It's quite an intimate setting. Um, so yeah, it's definitely worth checking out if you get the chance it's on like three or four times a day at the moment at the roundhouse. It's not very long. And yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely kind of food for thought and the music, you know, I mean, hearing that kind of theme from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, I think I defy anyone to not kind of tear up at that. It's just such a beautiful piece of music and yeah, kind of put me in my feelings, um, about, you know kind of death <laughs> which is such a nice note to end on i'm ending how i started this episode
2: <laughs> yeah and uh, all of the ways in which i was made happy throughout it has now been <laughs> entirely drained from me at the thought that i did try and fail to get tickets to the annie baker someone i love so much that i actually do just read her plays for fun when i'm down and janet planet still doesn't have a uk release date so i know, wait, I know. <laughs> despair despair this is worse than this is this is worse than the final act of blood meridian (laughs) but yes thank you both so much for your recommendations and we will be back soon Next time, Christmas is coming very late on Alexander Payne's tragic comedy, The Holdovers, and David spoke to the director. James Samuels has an audacious take on the Messiah in Book of Clarence, while for Film Club, we'll be revisiting 1979's Being There. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif. My guests this week were David Jenkins and Hannah Strong. The podcast is produced by TCO London and was edited by Bob Stankus.